This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Do you have weak, damaged hair? New Garnier Fructis Hair Filler Systems fill hair with strength seven layers deep. In just one use, you can reverse up to one year of damage to hair smoothness. The sulfate-free hair filler plus vitamin CG system gives you up to 79% stronger hair and up to four times less breakage. New Garnier Fructis hair filler is available now on Amazon and at Walmart, Target, Ulta, Drug, and select grocery stores. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believe some things in life should be boring, like banking, because boring is steady, pragmatic, responsible. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for red carpets, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money, so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. PNC Bank National Association member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, the bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Thomas Lin, digital editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. You probably know that your body clock has a large influence on your energy levels throughout the day. However, recent scientific studies have revealed how your body clock also has a significant bearing on your body weight, immune system, mental health, sleep quality and more. How can this be possible? And what are the simple things that you can do to live more in tune with your biological timepiece? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Russell Boster, Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at the University of Oxford and author of Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionise Your Sleep and Health. Hello, Russell. Welcome to the show. Great to meet you, Thomas. I'm really delighted to join you today. Fantastic. So I'm going to start with the the big question. And I know that the term body clock is thrown about quite a lot in the science world. But what does it mean? What actually is somebody's body clock? Okay, if we think about what our biology needs to do, it needs to deliver the right stuff at the right concentration to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And if we don't do that, our systems fail. And you can think of the body clock or the circadian system as being key at at sort of organizing all of that biology in both time and in space. Now, If we look into the brain, there is a master clock within the brain called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And what the work I did when I was first in the States was trying to identify this brain structure as this master clock. And it comprises in humans about 50,000 cells. And what's so cool is you can take one of those cells out and you can look at it in a dish and it will show a 24-hour 
oscillation. It's a cellular clock. And we, we, I have to say, when we first started, we thought that the clock was the product of cell-cell interaction. It was a, an output of neural circuitry. But now we know it's a subcellular molecular feedback loop. And that, you know, the, the Nobel Prize in 2017 was, was given to the people who first showed how the clock ticked in the fruit fly. And what's remarkable is what you find in the fruit fly is pretty similar in us. The same basic building blocks exist across all of the animal world. So, so we have this, uh, this, this representation of, of an internal day within the brain. It's no use having a clock unless it's set to the external world. A classic mismatch between internal and external time is jet lag. And the way we get over jet lag and the way we adjust our clock on a daily basis is exposure to the light-dark cycle. And in fact, much of what I've been doing over the past few decades has been understanding how the eye detects light to regulate internal time. So you've got this sort of eye master clock within the brain axis. And we thought that's what would ha that happened for years, and that the signals from the master clock would then just drive rhythmic physiology, whether it's hormone outputs, whether it's behavior, whether it's appetite, whether it's digestive systems, whether it's immune function. And then we discovered, and in fact, not me, but Uli Schibler, and this, I can remember when I sort of saw these data emerge at this fantastic scientific meeting, showing that basically every cell in the, in the body has its has a capacity to generate a 24-hour rhythm. So it's not, and with the shorthand is, oh, the clock. But actually, it's not the clock. It's an entire circadian system where a master clock in the brain is coordinating billions and billions of individual cellular oscillators organized throughout the systems of the body. And 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 so it, it's a it's an entire temporal structure that is coordinating our our response to a rhythmic world, you know, the rotation of the earth on its axis. So just to clarify, it's not sort of one physical almost body clock inside someone's head. It's more of a, a system of systems, so to speak. Yes. Although what's fascinating is that the clock in the brain, in the suprachiasmatic nuclei, is seems to be fundamentally built in the same way as the clock you'll find in a liver cell or a gut cell or whatever, or a muscle cell. I, I, and so the basic system has been preserved, which is also, I think, fascinating. So what makes the, the clock in the brain so important then, if all cells have the same characteristics? That's a really good point. And of course, I think the, the analogy would be an orchestra. You've got the conductor in the brain producing a regular temporal beat um, from which all the component parts of the orchestra take a reference cue. And if you shoot the conductor, then all the um, <laughs> musicians and the cells of the body start playing at a slightly different time. And instead of having a glorious biological symphony, you have a sort of a biological cacophony where you can't do the right thing at the right time. And, and biology begins to fall apart. And in fact, in many diseases, that's what you see, that the, that the various organ systems and the cells within those organs are starting to drift apart and not produce a coordinated response, but essentially it's, it's, it becomes a sort of a time smear, a temporal smear. So... I think I might know the answer to this, considering you are saying that the biological clock impacts almost all cells in our body. How important is the body clock to our health? <laughs> it's about as important as it can get. I mean, you name a system, and, and it's being up and down regulated by, by a circadian system. I mean, one thing that's emerged fairly recently is the immune response. So, so what we now know is that uh, as we are 
approach sleep and the end of the day, the immune response, it, it sort of starts to get, get sort of turned down. It's, it's less, as it were, aggressive. And, and it's sort of turned down overnight. But when morning comes and we're out there running around interacting with others, it's turned up. So, for example, if you're going to be vaccinated against the flu virus, then the data show that morning vaccination is much more effective than afternoon vaccination. Uh, same, same, same vaccination, you know, against the same uh, um, sort of antigen uh, is going to be much more effective in the morning compared to the afternoon. So, you could ask the question: Well, why, why, why not have the, the the immune system on full throttle? And we don't know the answer to that, but the suspicion is that if you had the immune system on full throttle all the time, then you'd have a um, be, be much more vulnerable to autoimmune responses. So it's turned down when we're less likely to encounter new path- pathogens when we're asleep, and then turned up when we're moving around our environment, meeting other other individuals and, and other bugs within the environment. So it's one example of, of, of sort of a, this adaptive response. Uh, it's all about doing the right thing at the right time. And the same for digestion, same for thought and, and our ability to come up with solutions to, to complex problems. You know, it's incredible for adults problem-solving abilities peak at around about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock in, in, the, in the morning, uh, late morning, early afternoon. Uh, that's for adults. For teenagers, it's delayed by two hours, and we might want to discuss why that is. But by 5 o'clock, 5 a.m. In, in the early hours of the morning, our ability to process information is as impaired as if we'd consumed sufficient alcohol to make us legally drunk. That's the level of impairment that you have. And so everything's being up and down regulated in response to this dynamic world, this sort of earth that revolves once every 24 hours. It'd be great to get into the best time to do certain activities, but I should probably ask first, will these times be the same for every person? So does everyone have the same body clock? That's really fascinating. No, we don't. We ha- each of us has a chronotype, which is sort of a body clock type, and, and it's been variously described as morning people, so larks, intermediates, doves, and then owls, which are the evening people. And that arises because of three important interactions. One is your genetics. So by their contribution to our genes, our parents are still telling us what time to get up and go to bed. Uh, but there's a very, you know, <laughs> says some really nice data has emerged that, you know, even subtle changes in some of those key clock genes can predispose you to morningness or eveningness. The second factor is your age. So from about the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later. And it peaks late teens, early 20s when we are at our most late. And interestingly, males tend to peak later than females, and they tend to be later than females. And then there's a slow move to the time you get to your late 50s, early 60s, where you're getting up and going to bed at about the time you got up and went to bed when you were 10. And that line of sharp increase uh, over the over the years of puberty and the slow move to a more morning chronotype is associated with hormonal changes, um, specifically the sex steroids, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Point being is that by the time you're in your late 50s, early 60s, you're getting up and going to bed about two hours earlier than you would when you were in your late teens, early 20s. So there's genetics, there's there's age, and hormonal profiles. The third is the one that's often overlooked, 
And it's the one we have control over to some extent, which is when we see light. We talked about light being so important to set the internal clock to the external world. But in fact, morning light and evening light do opposite things. So morning light makes us get up earlier and go to bed earlier, whereas evening light makes us go to bed later and, uh, and get up later. So when we were all agricultural workers, you know, and out getting the sort of dawn dust signal, it was perfectly symmetrical, and we sort of be nudged backwards and forwards. Now, because we live in dim, dark caves in our buildings, we don't necessarily get symmetrical light exposure. And we did a study a few years ago. Uh, it was on university students around the world, and we showed that the later the chronotype, the less morning light they got, which would make them get up earlier, and lots of afternoon, evening light, which would make, make them get up later. So if you happen to be a really terrible owl, to some extent you can advance your clock by setting the alarm. It's brutal, because I am an owl. Uh, it's brutal. Uh, you get up and you ex expose yourself to bright morning light, either naturally, ideally, or from a light box, and that will move the clock forward early in time. So there's these three factors, genetics, how old we are, and when we see light. How can you actually tell what chronotype you are? Is it just simply how, how you're feeling, or is there a, a way to get assessed? Yeah, they're standard questionnaires. And in fact, in the back of um, Lifetime, uh, the, the, the book that I wrote fairly recently, there is a questionnaire because so many people are interested, you know, am I a lark or an owl? Most of us, 65% of us are somewhere in the middle. But there are extreme larks and extreme owls. And there are, there are questionnaires, there's a number of them uh, which have been very well validated. And they basically ask you, given your preferred bedtimes and wake times, when would they be? And they give you a range. Or, you know, when you, when you are forced to get out of bed in the morning, do you wake up fully refreshed or does it take you a long time to wake up? Those are the sorts of questions that, that, that you will be asked. What are your favourite chronotype quizzes available online? Have you seen any that you think are, are quite good? Yes, the, uh, the, the best I think is the Munich Sleep Questionnaire, which is an online uh, questionnaire, which I think is extremely good. It's a slightly different one because what it, uh, it sort of does is asks you, ask you what you'd like to do on work days versus uh, free days. And of course, that can have a big impact upon the sorts of decisions you make. So I, I think the Munich um, Sleep Questionnaire is, is probably my favorite. The, the most, the most um, sort of used uh, over the past 20, 30 years has been the Horn Osberg, which is the one I, I put in the back of the book. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! So once you've identified your chronotype, can you change it? So can you change from being a, a night owl to a morning lark? Can you reset your body clock, so to speak? 
Not really, no. I mean, you can, you can, of course, you can, you know, it, the genetics is is fairly fixed. The the the, the hormonal profile, it, it, you know, is fairly fixed. But what you can do, as I say, is is nudge it in the right de- direction by using more or less morning or evening light, and and that that actually does work and and has been shown to be effective. So, how practically could somebody do that? Say, particularly if they're trying to get up earlier and there's simply no daylight available at, at the time, or if someone is trying to avoid sunlight, should they be wearing sunglasses all the time in the morning? Yeah. So, so trying to make yourself more of a morning type, um, and, and of course that's tricky during winter, uh, and, and certainly the further north you go, the more difficult it becomes. I mean, if you're living in Tromso in, in northern Norway, you know, there's two, two months of darkness, and you know the family often troop into into a room in the morning with light boxes on full blast, you know, where they have their breakfast. So they get their, you know, their photon shower first thing in the morning, which which helps set the clock. And and that can be the same same for us living at lower uh, latitudes. I mean, we can sit in front of a light box where we have our, uh, our breakfast. But that's really just in the extreme winter. Most of the time, it, it means that we we get we get out and get morning light exposure. Interestingly enough, there was a study which has suggested that um, dog owners have a better and more robust sleep-wake cycle. And I, I don't think that's because they're companion animals. I just think it's because you have to get out and, and take the dog for a walk first thing in the morning. And that gives you your, and the dog, of course, you know, your morning synchronization. So I think it's that morning light that is so very important. So if you want to be more of a morning person, get a dog. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's probably cheaper to get a light box, but <laughs> that could be one solution. Just, yeah. just don't get but a cat. Yeah. No, don't get a cat or a hamster, for example. <laughs> what is the best time of the day to exercise? Well, that'll depend to some extent on your chronotype. And there are two strategies here. Because uh, the nighttime physiology, sleep physiology, uh, and the daytime physiology are very different. So, for example, during the day, we're taking calories and our activity is either burning those calories up or we're laying them down to fat. But at nighttime, of course, we're not taking calories in. We're mobilizing the calories, the stored calories. So one strategy is you get up and you do your exercise before breakfast, which means you're burning up your stored calories. The problem is that our ability to exercise in terms of uh, the length of exercise and, the, and, the, and how vigorous we can be increases throughout the day. And it, it peaks in the late afternoon, early evening. So what you could do is either exercise first in the morning, get those burnt calories, burn up those stored calories, or you exercise later in the day and you can and you can exercise for longer and more vigorously. And that ensures that you burn up the calories that you've taken in. So they're not lying around and that when you go to sleep, they're not sort of, or as you go to sleep, they're not converted into fat. So there's two strategies first thing in the morning or later in the day. Um, and actually, again, going back to chronotype, it's been shown that athletes, really fascinating, that the owls are far more effective at, 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 at rigorous exercise in the late afternoon, early evening, um, compared to earlier in the day. And it's interesting that most uh, Olympic finals and things tend to be late afternoon, early evening, because that's when people, on average, are able to to sort of uh, exercise most vigorously. So yeah, uh, it depends upon what you want to do. You sort of mentioned it before, but what's the 
What's the best time of the day to make a big decision or to be on point in terms of your mental processes? So if, if say, someone was a, a journalist who had to write a piece about how the body clock's impacting someone's health, when would be the best time for said journalist to get that sorted? Well, there's two components to that answer. One would be, on average, adults, their their cognitive abilities, their ability to sort of, you know, make make sums or, or, or sort of answer questions or reaction times, that, that sort of late morning, early afternoon. Uh, as I say, teenagers tend to be delayed about two hours. Uh, so earlier in the day, However, uh, there's some very nice data showing that a night of sleep can enormously enhance your ability to come up with novel solutions to complex problems. There was a a fantastic study by Jan Bourne and his group a few years ago. and Jan developed this task that people had to perform. And he gave it to one group in the morning, and they had to perform the task. They were introduced to the task in the morning. They performed it that afternoon. And about 20% of the group solved the problem. Next group, introduced in the morning, performed it the following afternoon, uh, but they weren't allow- allowed to sleep at all. And about 20%, you know, solved the problem. Of course, this is the exciting data. Uh, you know, introdu- third group introduced in the morning, performed it the following afternoon with a full night of se- sleep, 60 to 70% solved the problem. You know, showing that a night of sleep is not simply allowing you to, to, to retain, you know, and, and develop memories, which we're kind of familiar with, but it's also the processing of information, coming up with innovative solutions to complex problems. So, so if you are a journalist and you want to sort of to be at your peak, certainly introduce yourself to the topic the night before, sleep on it, and perform it the next day, probably uh, uh, sort of around about noon or so. One of the things that's quite fascinating, we talked about teenagers being delayed somewhat by about two hours. And um, uh, I think it's fascinating that our educational systems still put the so-called most demanding subjects like maths and sciences first thing in the morning. And it's been shown that if those uh, uh, lessons are pushed uh, later in the day, then more is retained by the students. And in fact, exams later in the day, uh, students do better. So what's the contradiction here? Why, why this conflict? Well, it's straightforward. The, the teachers tend to be adults. They're full of, you know, vim and vigor and bounce into the classroom first thing in the morning um, and feel capable of teaching these demanding subjects, but the students are still waking up. So there's a, there's a genuine temporal mismatch between students and their teachers. How much would someone's chronotype influence how well they might do if they were, say, sitting an exam in the afternoon? Is it only going to vary by a few hours or something more? Because on average, uh, teenagers tend to be later chronotypes, not all, uh, but, but on average, then it has been shown that if you start the school day later, and this has been done, done in the United States, where the school day, of course, starts, can start at 7.30 or even 7. So, so, you know, young people are getting up really early to get the school bus to get to school. And so now uh, the Californian uh, school district has, has said, but haven't enacted yet, I don't think, that the school, no, school, no school should start lessons before 8.30 in the morning. And it's been shown that that has uh, better educational outcomes, uh, less depression, less self-harm, less truantism. Can we extrapolate to the UK? I don't 
know if we can, because of course the school day for um, the UK starts at 10 to 9 or 9 o'clock. So we're half an hour later than the recommended uh, start time uh, in, in places like California and, and other places in the States. Uh, what we have shown is that working with teachers to give their students information about the importance of sleep and circadian rhythms. So we developed, you know, eight 30-minute uh, sessions delivered by the, the teachers. Uh, and in those uh, students showing uh, levels bordering on clinical insomnia, so really quite poor sleep, and that was about 20 to 25%, the education, at least short-term, improved their overall uh, feelings uh, of well-being uh, and their sleep-wake cycle. So education, I think, can be a very powerful tool in this space. And I do think while we're on the subject, it's absolutely crazy. You know, a third of our biology is sleep biology. Every aspect of our health is regulated by a circadian clock. And yet there's no formal instruction about the importance to our health and well-being uh, uh, within our school system. And, and I just don't understand why it's not embedded in the curriculum in the same way that sex education and personal hygiene and all of those other issues are. So if you were going to implement this in the school curriculum, what would you teach about when to eat? Like when's the best time to eat it in the day? When is the best time to have your sort of heaviest meal? That is again a fascinating topic. It's worth bearing in mind that the way that that we as a society uh, take in our calories has changed hugely. In 1100, breakfast was the main meal of the day. Um, and you had the big breakfast before you went out and worked. By the Tudor times, it was sort of 11 or 12 o'clock, so it had moved to more lunchtime. Uh, and so we think of those great Tudor banquets. They were not here in the evening. It was sort of tended to be during the middle of the day. And, and so as um, modernity had advanced and, and industrialization and because we now no longer work and live in the same space, we've separated that. So the, the longer and the longer commutes to work have meant that many people don't have time for breakfast. They skip breakfast. Uh, the demands of work mean that, you know, you may get a sandwich, you know, sitting at the computer screen or whatever. And then finally you get home ravenously hungry and stick the ready meal in the microwave. And that's when you have your big calorific intake. And the biology hasn't, hasn't shifted with, with this later eating time. In fact, if you give the same amount of glucose to individuals in the morning at lunchtime in the evening, the clearance of that glucose, you know, the extent to which it's metabolized and, 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 and you know, packaged up, is rapid in the morning, okay at lunchtime, but poor before you go to bed. So, and of course, high levels of circulating glucose later in the day predispose you to a greater risk of, of type 2 diabetes, uh, metabolic abnormalities, um, obesity, and, and of course, all the consequences associated with that. So really, we should be eating uh, earlier in the day and not later in the day. And we are not showing any real signs of shifting back to what was happening in the, in the pre-industrial era, when, when, as I say, most of us ate early in the day. I mean, I can remember my grandparents, you know, having a major a, a breakfast and a, and a big lunch, but a much, much lighter dinner or, or, or tea time. And so we've, we've gone very rapidly in two or three generations. Our eating habits have changed dramatically, for the worse, I'm afraid to say. So could having a, a big dinner impact somebody's sleep? It might do in the terms, in the sense that a large meal before you go to bed can produce 
gastric problems, which can make it uncomfortable and therefore less likely to get off to sleep. Yes, that can be an issue. And certainly uh, ulcers and things like that play up uh, worse at night. And and sort of acid reflux can be a big issue. And so people lay down. Uh, and of course, then there's much more uh, a chance of, of acid sort of uh, passing from the stomach into, into the esophagus. So yes, it's it, that's another good reason why you would limit your food intake uh, in the evenings. What about taking medication? When is the best time to do that? It will vary enormously depending upon the, the type of medication that you're taking. So uh, we've talked about vaccination being more effective in the morning rather than later in the afternoon. Some very interesting work, which is slightly controversial, uh, but I think in, broad, in, in a broad sense it's true, is that if you're taking an antihypertensive uh, because you've got high blood pressure, there's a study came published a couple of years ago suggested taking it before you go to bed rather than first thing in the morning is much more effective. And in fact, over something like a 10-year period, it can halve your chances of having a stroke. Now, how does that make sense? Well, the first thing to to, to be aware of is that there's a a 50% greater chance of having a stroke between 6 a.m., and 12 noon. And that's uh, the same for a heart attack. And that fits with, you know, you're in the in, in a reduced sort of a blood pressure state, you're preparing for activity. So the clock is then driving up blood pressure, you're then active. And so, you know, you get this massive rise in blood pressure. Now, if you're healthy, that's not an issue. But if you're hypertensive, then that can be a real issue. And and so by the time you've actually woken up and taken your medication, you're you know in the middle towards the end potentially of that really risky phase of that six a.m. to twelve noon window. But many of these antihypertensives, these drugs, have a long half life. So if you take them before you go to bed, they're hanging around and in sufficient concentration to actually hit that surge in blood pressure. Uh, that would normally occur first thing in the morning. So you have to understand the underlying temporal circadian biology to, to know when best to take drugs. Where we have some very clear data is in different forms of cancer. There was a famous study on childhood leukemia Oh, quite some years ago now, maybe 20 or more years ago, showing that when the children were given their chemotherapy late afternoon, early evening, there was a much greater chance of survival versus taking the chemotherapy first thing in the morning. It was something like 75% survival versus uh, 35% survival over, a, I think it was a four or five year period. So that's a that's a big deal. Ovarian cancer, again, d- same drug, same concentration, different time. And it went, if I can remember the details, uh, essentially after five years, 40% of the group were alive with one time versus 10% at another time. So, so it really emphasizes because our biology is so completely dynamic, it's doing different things at different times of the day. No great surprise that the medications that we take will also have a different effect uh, uh, across the day. And this whole area of chronopharmacology People are begun, beginning to be aware of it, but it's not, it's not routine in clinical practice. What about sleep? Sort of thinking about the body clock, what are the simplest things that somebody could do to improve their quality of sleep? 
so of course, you know, sleep is a lot more than just a body clock. You you have this internal 24-hour drive saying, now you should be asleep, now you should be awake. There's also the, the factor of sleep pressure. The longer you've been awake, the greater the need for sleep. And so the clock and this and this this sleep pressure usually interact. And of course, one of the great problems of night shift work is that they night shift workers do not adapt to the night shift. And so they are working when their body clock is saying you should be asleep sleep. So they're overriding that deep biology saying you should be asleep. And furthermore, uh, even though the sleep pressure is hugely high when they finish the night shift and they go home, trying to sleep is a problem because the body clock is now saying, hang on, it's daytime, you should be awake. So the quality, the daytime sleep you get um, in, as a night shift worker can be very poor. So you get the double whammy of a misaligned clock and uh, and an abnormal uh, sleep pressure. Uh, so sleep, though, is it's really fascinating. Um, we're beginning to really understand the nuts and bolts and the neuroscience of sleep. But one of the, I think, really important issues is that most individuals won't have a sleep problem at all. I mean, clearly, there are clinical issues about sleep. But most of us will be either anxious or stressed. And that will interact with our abilities to sleep. I mean, just a simple example. Um, it's always assumed that, you know, the perfect night of sleep is this eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. And that's actually that kind of nonsense was part of the reason I wrote Lifetime, because it ignores the fact that people are incredibly variable. Uh, and, and, and a healthy sleep may range, you know, some people as low as six hours, some people may need 10, 10 and a half, maybe even 11 hours. And we each of us have to work out what our optimum sleep needs are, and then defend those sort of sleep behaviors. Um, so, so sleep duration is, is enormously variable. We talked about sleep weight timing, one's chronotype uh, can, can change. But, but what happens as we age, and we, we tend to wake up, more. We're often told that, um, you know, we have to have this uninterrupted sleep. Well, that's also nonsense. We go through a cycle of a REM, non-REM sleep cycle, and we almost wake up every 70 to 90 minutes or so. Many of us actually wake up, uh, and then we fall back to sleep again. But some people wake up and are anxious and stressed, and, and that then stops them getting back to sleep. The other thing is that the default position of human sleep is what's called bi biphasic or polyphasic, which is where you wake up, you may interact with others, you may go back to sleep again, you may wake up again. Um, it's not a consolidated eight hours. And so when people don't know this, they think they wake up and think, oh my goodness, that's it. I might as well start doing my emails and start drinking coffee. And of course, if you stay calm, keep the lights low, maybe a few pages of Jane Austen or um, Radio 4 Extra, uh, 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 just something relaxing, uh, and then you will fall back to sleep again. That was Russell Foster, Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at the University of Oxford and author of Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionise Your Sleep and Health. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com.